In episode three of MobyCast, John and Chris introduced me to Amazon Elastic Container Service. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. So today, you know, there were several things that we talked about last week that I felt like we could get in um, into a little deeper. Um, but rather than do an extension of, of last week's episode where we talked about what a company or an organization goes through when they begin to take on containerization and Docker and, and um, putting stuff in the cloud with Docker, uh, rather than continue down that path, I thought we'd do something a little bit more technical today, which is to talk about something that we use a lot, which is Amazon's Elastic Container Service or ECS. Um, because that'll just give us, it'll just give us a, something a little less theoretical and a little more concrete to talk about, and we can explain how it works and and talk about why we use it and other alternatives and everything. So we can we can just stay a little bit more grounded and, and a little less uh, meta. So today we talk about ECS. So to start with, I thought that we could just, you know, we everybody probably already knows the the containers. the The name comes from container ships and stacking containers on a ship. Um, and then that's the the core analogy of what containers are all about. But maybe you can talk about that a little bit more, Chris, just in terms of how that analogy relates to scaling and having a large application. Sure. You know, we as you talked about, we've, we've discussed containers and virtual machines and the difference between them and uh, why why containers offer some some great advantages, and we've talked a little bit about how you might create those containers and run them. Um, and but it, it's kind of been on this this kind of a manual process. So you could imagine as you adopt this technology, you know, it's one thing to do it for a single application, um, where you know one person can kind of manually go through the steps of figuring out where you're going to run this container, you know, on what virtual machine or what piece of, of bare metal you're going to run it on. Um, and then actually making sure that the image is there on the container, making sure that there's enough resources on that particular machine, starting the container, making sure that the container stays up and running. And then what happens when you want to go and update your your container with the, with a new image because you, you now want to deploy a new version of your software. So there's lots of um, just... Parts of the life cycle. Um, there, there's there's lots of parts of, of the of a container's life cycle that that need to be addressed. Um, and so, Docker in and of itself, or any kind of container technology at its core, you know, doesn't address that. Just to stick with the analogy, what you just described of running a container and choosing what machine it goes on, figuring out how much memory it has, and all that. That is sort of like to stick with our analogy. It's sort of like having a courier take your package from one place to another in the United States. You choose your courier, you tell them what plane to take, they get on the plane and they go with just your package to where it's supposed to go. Yeah, or, or perhaps even more so, like you are the courier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's not someone else, it's it's you. You're, you're the one that's doing that, right? And so obviously there's a, there's a lot of overhead with that. Um, there's only so much that you can do. And again, if it's just one container that you're doing, then okay, maybe it's fine. If it's a couple, okay, it's a little bit more work, and now you're maybe you're spending, you know, an hour of your day doing it. But what happens when you have fifty containers? Like, what happens then, right? And so that's where these other tools and services that that build on top of the container technologies um, come into play, and they're broadly called orchestration systems because they're kind of like the the conductor of the of, of the orchestra, right? It's kind of basically dictating who does what, when they do it, um, how things are um, sequenced, um, scheduling, whatnot. So you can think of them as the the conductor um, of the orchestra, like the the head foreman on the dock that's directing all the cranes on how to how to take those containers and put. Them on the ship. There we go. Um, sticking, so with our, sticking with our our ship analogy. So they're the ones deciding which color of containers go where, because all we can see of a container is its color, right? So all the red ones over here and all the blue ones over there. And then once the ship is filled up, what do they do? Gotta exactly. Get so ship, it's right? it's 
Yep, absolutely. So, um, and it's also it's their job, right, to make sure that they're they're kind of putting these things, um, stacking them in a way that makes sense, right? Like you don't have a whole bunch of of holes and gaps, and you don't lay one container horizontally and another one stacked vertically, right? You have it's not it's not Jenga, um, you know. It's, it's <laughs> you know you are you are um, you want something intelligent, right? And so that's what and that's actually a pretty difficult problem to do. Um, and so that's what these systems like ECS, um, that's, that's their job. They take that. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great, um, job that's ripe for automation, um, that software, um, that software can do instead of people. And so that's what these systems do. And it, and it allows you to scale, um, and not, um, waste your time doing these things manually. So Chris, can I, can I ask you a quick question? You, you had, you had mentioned that if you're only managing one container, then then sure you could probably do this yourself. But what happens when you you reach about fifty containers? And so, in in my head, I think of like a single, let's just say a web application is running on a single container. Like how how does that application end up managing or running something like fifty containers? Like what's what's the actual thing that's happening that would require so many different containers for a single application? Right. Um, and so this, this comes into play just like, what is your overall philosophy for um, your infrastructure for delivering your software? And so a lot of um, teams, companies, um, you know, they definitely have more than one application um, or what they, what they've done is they've, um, you can think of it logically as one application, but it's actually broken up into many components, right? It's a, it's a, it's a modular architecture um, this is one of those those buzzwords that you may have heard heard of microservices architecture, um, where it's really just kind of breaking things up into doing doing one thing, doing that one thing well, a single a single concern. Um, so you may have a single application that's actually broken up into five separate services, right? And so um, to your end users, they're just using the the timesheet tracking application, but on the back end for the DevOps team, they're actually having to, to, to keep five servers up and running. And then you want to have duplicates of those things as well, right? For availability, like what happens if one of those um, one of those services um, dies because there's a there's a there's a bug in the code or some failure on the machine or whatnot, right? So you want to have duplicates of it. So you you quickly go from and this is just a simple case, right? Just one application. Maybe it's broken up into five microservices, um, and you want to have duplicates of each. So at bare minimum, you're actually running ten separate containers, right, for that one application. Um, now multiply that by, you know, there's many teams and companies that have ten applications or or fifty, right? It depends on the size of your organization. Um, we also talked about the number fifty. Fifty is definitely not a magic number. That was just a number that I threw out there as like, wow, I personally would not want to hand. Um, handcraft the placement, the running of, of 50 containers. I, I wouldn't want to do it with, you know, actually even one um, personally. Um, why, why even waste 15 minutes of, of each day um, dealing with these things? So if you're, when you, when you, it's one thing to run it, look, we, and we talked about, I think in a previous podcast, running containers locally on your development machine. Um, for that, you know, you definitely would be doing it by hand and you, you are the orchestrator for that. Um, but once you go to a deployment environment, um, whether it be your staging or production environment, that's when, um, letting something else take care of the automation of that's pretty important. There's another analogy rich to that, that I want to talk about here that we'll probably refer to again and again, as just shorthand, which is the pets versus cattle analogy. And so I'll ask Chris to explain what that is, but but I think it's it's timely because we just talked about transportation and we just saw, I think it was a United Airlines that wouldn't let uh, emotional support peacock on board. <laughs> yeah, it was United. <laughs> so yeah, let's. So it, we're moving stuff. We're moving containers um, from one place to another. You know, in our analogy, but but treating them like pets versus treating them like cattle. Let's let, please discuss, Chris. Sure. So um, again, this is a. Uh kind of a, a wonderful evolution of the technology and the tools and, and automation and just kind of driven by the needs of, of just scaling systems, right? So in the past, um, before we had a lot of these, um, these great automated tools, if you wanted a server, you, you, you went and you bought a server, you racked it, um, you, you know, installed the, 
the memory chips in it, maybe or you up you upgraded the the hard drives. Um, you installed your application software on that. Um, you gave it a name, right? You you called it like you know whatever you know, Mister Smith number one, right? And and you called another one, you know, maybe maybe you named it after a cartoon character or something like that. But yeah, that you actually probably gave it a name, right? And you actually printed out a label, probably on a on a label maker, and, and put it on the front of the machine. And and you had a collection of these, and these were long running things that you, you know, you individually referenced, um, and you had to deal with. And, and, um, it was kind of like this finite state of resources that kept around. So those are like pets, right? So you, you, when you, when you, yeah, so many, so much of your emotional state was invested in keeping those things up and running that they probably weren't that different from emotional support animals. I get that now. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, just like a pet, I mean, a pet's around for, you know, hopefully a long time, you give it a name, you have a bond, you know, you bond with it. Um, and it's something that you're going to hold on to. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of really how things definitely were ingrained and how they, they used to be when, um, kind of what we call the cloud came along that kind of changed everything. Um, in the, in the sense that it was no longer, you were no longer responsible for creating these machines. It was someone else. And, you know, at first people, I think, you know, treated them the same way that um, they would bring one of these things up, they would name it, um, it would be long, long lived and, and, and they would kind of treat it as a pet. But um, as, as time went on and as, as the tools got better, um, folks started realizing that there's, there's really no reason to have that approach, right? We can, we can, view this as a, as a very um, fungible set of resources. And this is one of the reasons why, like with Amazon, so many of their services are, are prefixed with the term elastic. Um, and, and elastic really kind of gets to the core of the, the pets versus, versus cattle um, mentality, right? The, the analogy. So, you know, with pets, we talked about, these are long-lived things. You name them, you have bonds with them. They, they, you know, you have like this one-to-one relationship with them. Cattle, you know, they have ear tags, um, they have ID numbers and, you know, they don't have names and they, they come and go. Um, and so that's how we're now moving towards treating, treating our machines in the cloud is it's this varying state of resources. Um, you know, we have a need at some particular point in time to, to run some software on a particular, um, machine and we don't really care what machine that is right we just we have some some requirements on like what the specifications are for that machine but other than that like we don't care if it comes from server a server c server z it 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 really doesn't matter we just need some server to run that software um, and it can come and go and there's also lots of benefits that come into play by having these short-lived machines as opposed to long-lived machines right so the longer a machine is is up and running the more um, kind of just uh, entropy comes into play in that machine, right? Things like fragmentation of storage systems and things like memory leaks of, of long-running applications on there and um, issues with hardware, right? Like hardware hardware fails, um, chips go bad, um, things burn out. Um, so this, I, this idea of like saying like, hey, I'm, I'm just bring up a, a, some, some resource, a machine that I can use. Um, I'm going to use it for a short period of time. And then when I'm done, let's get rid of it. You know, it also really balances out um, well with only having the capacity that you need at that point in time. Um, and again, kind of going back to the elastic, you can think of this as like your, the, the amount of resources that you have is, is stretches, right? And, and it contracts based upon what your current demands are. So in, in the past, like, if you treat your machines as pets for their long lived, then you kind of have to have enough machines around for your peak usage, but maybe most of the time you're not in your peak. Right. Um, so you have all this capacity out there that just really doesn't need to be used. Um, and, and that's, you know, because you're treating these as pets and, and they're this long lived finite set of resources, um, cattle, um, where you have this, this set of resources that can kind of come and go. You can, expand and, and contract that accordingly. And so it's a lot more efficient just from a business standpoint and cost standpoint. Also, it's also useful for monitoring and troubleshooting. So to think about to think about things as cattle uh, instead of pets, because I think engineers have a history of 
having a relationship with, especially with troubleshooting of getting onto a machine and, and using, you know, Linux commands or terminal commands on that machine to find out what's running, how, how old processes are, look at logs on that machine, um, doing lots of greps and other commands to just figure out what's happening. Kind of, it's kind of like talking to your pet to find out what's wrong. Um, whereas uh, in the new containerized world, a more likely thing to do would be to just let the orchestrator take that that particular container out to pasture. It's, let's just be done with that one. If it's acting up, just shut it down. Get let's get a new one. So let's uh, let's get into ECS specifically. Um, I guess we kind of need to start by defining what it is. We've talked we've talked about how it's an orchestrator, and we've talked about what orchestration means in terms of our analogies. Um, so, what is ECS as an orchestrator? I don't know if, if there's much we can add to it, but I'll give you a couple couple minutes here to just do your best, Chris. Sure. So we can. Um, there's there's definitely some important overall high level concepts that we can talk about that will kind of help frame that discussion, and then we can kind of figure out where we want to go from there. Um, and I think it will be super helpful, you know, for Rich to to pipe in and kind of let let me know and and, and you know, John, when um, we start using terms or techniques that um, terms or term, you know terminology that uh, is kind of we take for granted um, what it means and, and how that works. That sounds good. Yeah. So so with that. Um, you know, with, with these kind of, with, with these, and by the way, I should mention there's, there's many orchestration systems out there for containers and, 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 and Docker. Um, so some of the, one of the, the most popular systems out there is Kubernetes. Um, and so um, very, very popular piece of software out there. It's open source software. It was developed at Google um, for them to run their loads. It's very, it's, it's open source. It's portable. It, it runs in just about any kind of environment. And that's one of, and it's also, one of the, the ones that's, that has been around the longest. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. Um, Docker itself, um, they have built their own orchestration technology called Swarm. Um, and that is actually just kind of part of, of, of the Docker engine. So um, you can use that as your orchestration system. And then um, uh, we're talking about ECS now, which is Amazon's version of it. And one of the reasons why why we use ECS as opposed to like Kubernetes um, is just because there's a lot, like if you're, if you're running your cloud workloads inside Amazon, there's just a lot of benefits to using the Amazon orchestrator because it is so well integrated with all the other various Amazon services, whether they be load balancers or auto scale groups, um, CloudWatch, um, monitoring systems, logging and whatnot. Um, it really just there's just so much, so many benefits, so much um, bang for the buck there, and that's one of the reasons why um, why we really uh, prefer ECS um, since we do run um, basically Amazon is our our preferred cloud provider. So so with that, one of the the first things an orchestrator needs, right, is it it needs resources. So it needs actual machines on which it can schedule and, and run and monitor these containers. And so in the ECS world, um, that's referred to as a, as a cluster. Um, and so what's a cluster? So a cluster is, a, is basically a set of, of EC2 machines, and you have one to N of these EC2 machines. Um, in our analogy, the cluster is a group of ships ready for those containers. Exactly. And uh, EC2 stands for Elastic Compute Cloud. Um, it's Amazon's technology for basically uh, spinning up some sort of computing um, device server, server, whether it be a, a virtual machine. Um, they actually have support for, for bare metal instances as well. Um, they have multi-tenant versions versus dedicated ones. So uh, lots of different types of machines, but that's the core technology for saying, hey, I need a, a machine, um, a computer essentially running in the cloud. Um, that's an EC2 machine. And um, for my cluster, I'm going to have one to N, N of these machines as part of that cluster. And so, Chris, if I can stop you there, is each one of these EC2 instances its own container? Or could there be many containers on each EC2 instance? 
So the so you know we had the discussion about virtual machines versus containers. Um, so these EC2s think of them as these are virtual machines, um, and then the containers then get scheduled on them. So kind of going back to to the analogy um, that John was was pointing out, these EC2s they're the ships. Um, our containers, our, our software are the containers that will then get loaded onto these ships and packed into them uh, accordingly. And so the, the more ships that we have, obviously the more containers that we can, we can actually run in our, in our workload. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is that there are many containers as part of an EC2 instance. And then the EC2 instance, the analogy is that it's the ship. And so you'd have, if you had multiple EC2 instances, it would be like a fleet of ships. Exactly. Right. So the, the EC2s are your, your bare, you know, your, your host resource. You have to run a container on some computer. Those are these EC2s and you have this, this cluster of them. And so each one of these EC2s has, you know, a certain amount of processing power. It has a certain amount of memory, um, maybe storage. Um, so there's these um, resource constraints that each one of these things have. And that comes into play when, when the orchestrator um, wants to schedule one of your containers to, to actually run. Right. So, so that's the clause. So the, the cluster ends up like, if you don't have resources to run your containers on, you're not going to go anywhere. So that's kind of one of the, the core foundational ideas behind, um, behind the orchestrator. By the, the way, um, shame on Amazon for naming their container orchestration service ECS. I, I mean, come on. It's like, it's not memorable. Um, I've I've had fifteen conversations at least where people accidentally call ECS EC two or vice versa, <laughs> and their competition is using cool words like Kubernetes and Swarm. And here we are. Hey, they, they, in Amazon's defense, they're learning. They 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 now <laughs> have Fargate, right? So uh, that that is a problem though. When I was doing a little bit of research, like I watched a video on ECS that never once said ECS. <laughs> right. It was just, it was EC2. So I was like, wait a second, are these like the same thing? And it's like elastic cloud or elastic container service. Right. But then EC2 is elastic container with this two. It's like, yeah, EC2 is elastic cloud compute. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, so that, that's the problem yeah, is that I, yeah, yeah. I don't know, but very, whatever. Very I, what's, what's really ironic is you would actually expect EC2 to be called ECS because um, just about everything that Amazon does, it's a service, right? It's an elastic block service or S- SQS, right? Or SES, um, uh, simple email service, simple uh, SNS, simple notification service. So you'd think that EC2 would be the elastic compute service, but instead they called it the elastic compute cloud. And so the two CCs end up getting abbreviated as C2, um, but now, this was this was one of the very first services they offered way back when, like back in 2006. Um, so it's almost like they they like they were reserving ECS for something else, right? And it's completely <laughs> happenstance. It's, but it's 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 really um, kind of ironic that it worked out that way. So 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 we talked about the cluster, and that's the the set of host resources on which the scheduler can schedule things. Then we have to kind of define our applications themselves. Um, and what they, um, the application definition, if you will. And so uh, uh, we can call that, that in, in ECS parlance, that's um, ECS has, you define your services, right? And so a service is a, um, a definition that kind of dictates the collection of containers that you want to run as a unit as part of that service. So, um, kind of can I just say that I, I have a way of thinking of services that may be a little bit more understandable. I, that, was, that was a very good technical de- definition of it, but I just think of a service as a long running thing. It's something that can do something that just runs forever. And then what it's running, how many containers it has, what the containers are doing is what you needed to, to define. But a service is something that's long running. It just goes and goes and goes. And yeah, that's, and that, that's a, have to define one of those or more of them. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's, that's a great, a great way to, a great way to think about it. Um, and so that, that's a, yeah, that's exactly what it is. You, you have like the nuances of like, there's some services that are, uh, they have inbound traffic. And so you, you'll have request, your software will be, will be um, accepting requests that will be coming in to 
these these containers and those you typically will then um, they'll front those with load balancers to direct that traffic into it and then you can also have services that don't have inbound traffic at all um, instead they're they're kind of like demon processes they're they're background processes that just again long running um, they're doing work um, in the background they need to be you know running as a, as a service but they don't have any in, inbound um, inbound requests coming into them. Um, and then those, those, you know, can be defined as well um, with, with ECS and, and run. Some of the other criteria that you have with services is you'll, you'll tell ECS, you know, how many of these things you want running. Um, so you could have, you know, a single one, a, a, a single instance of your, of your service running, or you could say for redundancy or scalability um, reasons, um, for performance reasons, you may want to have two or three or four. Um, so you can... You can tell ECS that, and ECS will then um, deal with it accordingly as it as it um, manages that that service for you. Uh, let's see some of the other things that you'll you'll do when um, services you'll, you'll you'll give it um, like identity information, like what what type of um, identity the the application should it should assume when it's running, and that will kind of dictate you know things like security and, and just access to, to various resources and whatnot. But, but yeah, I think um, the, the important takeaway here is that a service long running piece of um, long running software uh, in container format, um, kind of the parameters that go along with um, how that service should be managed and spun up and, you know, how many of them there should be. Um, I want to take a moment to, restate something that you've said, kind of kind of summarize something that you said and bring it back to a point that you made earlier. So we've talked you just talked about you need computers to run these services. You need to define the services. The services are underneath them. They're going to be some containerized software. Um, and that if the service is listening for people calling it, then it's got to have um, a load balancer in front of it. So so those are three things that ECS is taking care of for you. It's it's taking care of letting you define the service, let, letting you say how many computers are in, in the cluster and putting load balancers in front of your cluster. Um, and the, the thing I want to bring that back to is um, what that, that bringing up and making available computers and load balancers is stuff that because everything is inside AWS can all happen you know, automatically. Um, and I think, at least uh, before the advent, the very, very recent advent of Kubernetes on AWS, that you had to, if you were going to use another one of the orchestrators like Kubernetes or Swarm, some of that stuff you had to deal with a lot more manually. I'm not entirely sure because I don't have experience with those other ones, but I think that is the case. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, um, you know, one of the, uh, getting back to earlier, like, well, why are we why are we talking about ECS and not Kubernetes when Kubernetes is kind of like the the de facto leader here? You know, if we were running our our workloads um, uh, on premise, like our own machines, um, using like um, our own cloud computing stack and open source software, then we'd, we'd be using Kubernetes. Um, if we were running inside um, Google Compute Cloud, we'd probably be using Kubernetes. But um, given that we're inside Amazon like a lot of this stuff that you just talked about that you would have to kind of like do manually, like how do you define a cluster, right? Um, and, you know, you have to kind of set that up manually if you're using Kubernetes versus with ECS, you just tell ECS, hey, create a cluster for me with some, you, you kind of give it some, again, some parameters, like what type of virtual machine should the host be um, and how big they should be. And then uh, ECS under the covers, it's actually using Things like cloud formation um, to go build uh, launch configuration um, definitions, which dictate like what these host machines look like, and it's creating an auto scale group for you, which basically says like here's how to go create a cluster that can be scaled up and scaled down using that launch configuration. It's wiring up load balancers um, to to talk to your to your services. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's doing a lot of stuff under the covers, um, that you don't have to do that saves you a lot of headache and a lot of, a lot of trouble. Maybe also removes a little bit of flexibility, but for probably even more than 80% of the workloads that you might have, um, it does, it does the trick. 
perfectly well. Yeah, and, and the great thing is like you have access to all those 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 variables. So um, you know, if there is anything you do want to tweak, by all means, go ahead and and do it. So um, you can change the the launch configuration to have your own custom user data script so that on startup, each one of your host EC2s download some software or run some kind of process that you need to have running on your machines. Um, you can change out your auto scale group to say, Hey, I don't want, I want these things now to run on, uh, you know, private subnets and to not have public IP addresses. And that's super easy to do. So, um, you don't have to go deeper and, and, and to, to get more advanced with that stuff, but the hooks are there and you can go ahead and, and do so if you, if you're so inclined, if you need that. So there are three things that we've been talking about in the last five minutes that we haven't really defined and they're, they're not simple. Um, but you can't really have a conversation about ECS without, without using these terms. And so maybe we could talk about what each of them are. So you talked about cloud formation, you talked about auto scale groups, and you talked about launch configurations, those three terms. Maybe we, we can go one at a time. So what's cloud formation? So cloud formation uh, broadly is um, typically called infrastructure as code. And, and what that means is it means you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanism for automating the creation um, and the update and the deletion of, of infrastructure components, whether they be computers or load balancers or security groups, um, that kind of thing. So without having infrastructure as code, you know, you might do all this stuff manually via like um, an administrator console, um, right? But there's there's very little insight into what's going on, and it's a, and it's a very much a manual process, right? So you go in, you know, you you sign into an account, you go to some screen, you click a button to create something, you type in a bunch of parameters, you go to the next screen, type some more parameters, click save. And now you've created that one piece of it. And then you go and do this now for, you know, 12 other pieces um, type thing. So very manual. It's also, it's mysterious, right? No one knows really, like, how did you do that? Um, so you have to go maybe show someone how to do it, or you have to let people know what you did. Um, infrastructure as code is, is taking all those actions, and it's actually putting them into a written set of instructions, um, you know, whether it be in JSON format, or sometimes it's a, it could even be an, an actual um, software code, but it's something that's very declarative. It's something that can be um, checked into your source control systems. It can be versioned. Um, and then, you know, even more importantly, it, you can now automate that. So you, you write that once and now you, you run that through your, uh, the system that reads that, that can then interpret that and go do those actions on, on, on behalf of you. So, you know, you may have a, to create like your staging environment, you know, you may have to just, there's, there's lots of different various infrastructure resources you would have to create, whether again, whether it be like networking and subnets and routing tables and, you know, bring up EC, you know, virtual machines and EC2s and load balancers, um, uh, roles, that kind of stuff that might take you hours or even days to, to, to do. Um, but instead, if you do it once, using one of these tools like CloudFormation, that's this infrastructure as code, then to, to spin up one of these things takes minutes, right? Because you just, you just feed that set of instructions into this piece of software to do that. So, so think of it as it's just a, um, it's a recipe um, for declaring what resources to create. Um, and then likewise, it can use that same recipe to then say, like, when you don't need it anymore, to, for it to go and delete all that stuff for you. And so there's lots of infrastructure as code tools and technologies out there for, for delivering this. Amazon's version is called CloudFormation. I want to take it even one more, one more layer into the real physical world, um, just because I, th I think it, it's fun to think about things this way. So there's data centers out there and they have these real machines that are just sitting on racks in those data centers, like thousands and thousands and thousands. And they're always there. They're, they don't actually go away. They're always sitting there. And so when you use the AWS console, so you're on you know amazonwebservices.com and you're clicking around and you're like, I want another EC2 instance. And so you click all the buttons on the web page to, to give you another EC2 instance. Um, What's, be happen what's happening behind the scenes is that on 
all of those machines on all of those racks is run, are running at least one little program to control the machine. And um, you say you want a new EC2 instance and, and Amazon has computers that route your requests and goes and finds a free one that's not getting used and, and says, let's associate this one with, and in our case, it'll be Kelsis. Let's give this one to Kelsis. Let's turn on the meter like a taxi cab and okay, Kelsis, it's yours. Do whatever you want with it. So that's that's sort of the manual way that you already described, Chris. And then you, and then you describe you know infrastructure as code. It's the same exact thing, except now we're writing a program to say go give Kelsis this instance, this this EC2 machine, instead of clicking around on the website to get that that machine. Um, so I just wanted to take it all the way down to that level of, of these machines are literally there, sitting on racks, waiting for people to to have them, and the and the code is just a program to re, to essentially automate what you might do if you were clicking around in the console. And I think the the piece is that you have the option to do either. Is that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So now we, we know what CloudFormation is. Uh, actually, I want to let Chris say what a couple of the other options are out there for infrastructure as code. But before you say that, Chris, I just wanted to say that we know what CloudFormation is and we have to talk about CloudFormation with ECS because under the covers, when ECS is making a new cluster for you or when it's adding a new machine because you're scaling up or taking away a machine because you're scaling down or putting a load balancer in front of your cluster, it itself is using CloudFormation to do all that for you. You never have to touch CloudFormation. And in fact, when I first started messing around with it, I wasn't even aware that that's what was happening, but that is what's happening. ECS is using CloudFormation to do all of that. Uh, okay, so what are the other... Uh, what are some other infrastructure as code um, options, Chris? Um, sure. Uh, one of the more popular ones out there is uh, Terraform. Uh, this is from HashiCorp. You know, a very uh, nice set of tools um, and uh, support for for various cloud providers as well. Uh, open source software um, and uh, very uh, kind of a even a bit more um, perhaps developer friendly. Um, then CloudFormation. CloudFormation is um, completely specified in JSON and uh, various different uh, keywords that you need to know about and whatnot. They do have some, uh, Amazon does have some visual designers um, to help create these JSON documents, this, these code, um, the infrastructure as code piece, the, the recipes, if you will. Terraform looks a, a bit more like actual code and, and, and less like like pure, pure data. That's, that's actually interesting because you made me realize that there's, you know, yet another layer down. So CloudFormation is is something that you can code to, and you, it has its own sort of domain-specific way of defining your infrastructure. Um, but when it runs, it's really using some underlying APIs that Amazon has defined that let you say, turn, you know, that when you call those APIs, it'll turn on a machine or turn off a machine or, or assign an IP address to a machine or, or whatever. Um, and I think that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would believe that Terraform is going straight at those APIs, right? Or, or do you think it's going through CloudFormation to do what it does? Oh no, no, it, it's absolutely going straight through those APIs, just just like CloudFormation is as well. So right. CloudFormation is a, um, you know, is, a, is it's a, it's it's JSON data kind of describing basically all the the information that the CloudFormation engine needs to know in order to make the appropriate API calls to for the various subsystems. So if it needs to spin up an EC2, um, it's going to make an EC2 API call. If it needs to create an auto-scale group, it's going to make that um, that API call. Um, likewise, something like Terraform, it's it's doing the exact same mechanism, even more, they, they have to, they support multiple um, cloud providers, right? So whether it be uh, Google or Microsoft Azure um, or AWS, um, so they have, kind of an abstraction layer built on top of that. So they have a concept of just like, I need to create a VM. Um, and then they have providers in for each one of those various different services to make the specific API calls to do that. So it's a different API call on AWS than it is on Google to spin up a virtual machine. Um, but Terraform abstracts that away from you. So that's one of the advantages of something like Terraform is that it is cross-platform. So if that's something that um, is interesting to you, to you, it's something to look at. Um, if you're all in on AWS, then, then CloudFormation is, is something to get a really close look at. So 
So the first one was CloudFormation. And then I think the next in the series of things we needed to define is a launch configuration. What's, what's that? Mm-hmm. So a launch configuration is actually pretty straightforward and simple. It's, it's literally just a description of what you want your virtual machine to look like. Um, that's going to be inside of your, inside of your cluster. Right. So it's you're specifying things like what type of instance should your virtual machine be? Should it be, you know, a machine with, you know, a, a, a more inexpensive machine that has, you know, relatively uh, small amount of processing power and um, perhaps, you know, less than a gigabyte of RAM? Um, or is it, a, you know, a beefier machine that has, you know, eight gigs of RAM and it's got, you know, two virtual CPUs to give you some some more processing power? So you're. You're telling it like what type of virtual machine you want to spin up. You're also saying, you know, what you want the the preloaded software in there to be. So what, like what operating system you want on there? Is this Linux? Is it Windows? Um, You know, what flavor of Linux is it? What, what packages of software should be on there? You're also um, defining um, things like, you know, uh, some of the um, networking parameters around that. So it's, it's basically that whole definite, you know, whatever kind of criteria, um, you know, you, you would, you need to specify to say like, this is what my virtual machine should look like. This is how you actually create one of these things that that's going to go inside the cluster. Um, so that's the launch configuration. So ECS is running along happily, you know, it's, it's hosting a website maybe. And then, the website ends up on national news and ECS is like, whoa, I need to scale this thing up because I'm starting to get a lot of traffic here. And so ECS says, all right, I need another machine. Um, and it says, oh, let me look at my launch configuration to see what kind of machine I need. And it looks at, looks at its launch configuration and says, okay, I see what machine I need. Now, CloudFormation, go give me one of these. Yeah, and it's um, kind of logically that's how it works. There's there's the other piece that we haven't talked about yet, which is um, the auto scale group, and right. that is the the, the piece in, in, that bridges these two these two things, right? So, auto scale groups they're fed a launch configuration, and so as a launch configuration is a template for like what an individual machine looks like. An auto scale group is a template for saying like what should my my cluster of these things look like. So you you give an auto scale group a launch configuration saying like, this is what each one of the nodes inside that cluster should, this is how they should be provisioned. In addition to that, you're also telling the auto scale group, like what network should you be putting these machines on? And how many of these machines should you be running? Um, what's the minimum number that should be running? What's the maximum? What's the desired count? So that's the auto scale group. So it controls the, you know, it's it's the cluster definition of these resources, if you will. Um, and then you can then hook up scaling policies on that scale group, right? So you can you can you can go in and define like when that scale group should change its configuration, its parameters, right? When it should spin up another one. So when we, um, so in that case where load goes up. Um, we don't have enough resources now to really um, comfortably handle the load. We need to spin up some more um, EC2s. You can create a scaling policy associated to that scale group that tells it that when this event happens, go ahead and go from four machines to five machines. And likewise, you can have scale down policies, right? You can say, hey, if, if um, this event happens, like our utilization goes under 10% for X number of time units, then go from, you know, take take one away. So kill a machine, terminate a machine, and it can do that for you as well. So when you said the, the minimum number of machines, the maximum number of machines, that minimum number and max, are, are those scale policies or, or are they just inferred scale policies? Um, no, they're, they're limits on, on that, the scale, that any kind of scale policies would have to adhere to. Right. Okay. So, yeah, the reason I ask is because you know one of the ma- one of the things that seems kind of magic is say you have everything set at two. You want your minimum to be two, your desired to be two, and your maximum to be two. So that means that e- ECS is going to use that auto scale group and just keep your number of machines at two at all times. And if you then manually go outside of EC, you know, you go behind ECS's back right into the EC two management console and you kill one of those machines. Um, behind EC- ECS's back, ECS is going to say, whoa, wait a minute, I'm supposed to have two of these, and it'll automatically make another one right then. 
Yeah, and the, um, kind, of, the kind of the cool thing here, it, it's actually not ECS that's doing that. ECS doesn't even really care. Um, it's the auto scale okay. group that's doing that. So this is kind of like this really sure. cool thing, right? That Amazon is eating their own dog food. They're they're building these services on top of other core services, whether they be cloud formation or auto scale groups, um, load balancers. You know, those they're they're leveraging the power and the capabilities of each one of those things and, and building these value added services on top of that. So it's one of the reasons why the number of services that Amazon is offering is just expanding so quickly, right? Like the, the foundational stuff that was done years ago, um, that was some of the hardest work now adding these, these new, um, these new services, you know, like if it's a voice transcription service or, um, uh, image recognition service, it's building upon so many of those foundational services that it becomes, you know, the, the developers of those services, they can focus on just what's different. They don't have to do, um, you know, this other kind of like table stakes types thing. So, um, auto scale groups is, is one of those things that, that ECS just kind of gets for free. Yeah. That's super interesting because it does, you know, I, I kind of want to, as excited as I am about what AWS has done there, I, I also want to point out that it's a bit annoying that it, they don't make that clear. So, when you use ECS, you fill out, you know, especially if you haven't really gone deep and figured out what it's all about, um, it seems like a fairly superficial thing that you're doing. You're setting up an ECS cluster and then you're defining tasks and services for that cluster. Um, and then when you go look at your Amazon bill, you're like, whoa, look, I've got load balancers that I'm paying for. And, and it's just not obvious, you know, when you set this all up that you're creating launch configurations, you're creating auto scale groups, you're you're turning on load balancers. I mean, they're, they don't say this is what ECS, this is, they don't make it clear without reading the manual, which is everything <laughs> I guess everybody should do. Um, but this is what you're really signing up for, that you're signing up for all these different services. Right. And, and that's the, this is probably going to be just the way that things work and it's going to accelerate and it's going to be, that's going to become more of a, just something that you will have to deal with as we use these services. There, things are so complicated there are so many like I said, maybe these these core services and and ways to kind of like thread these things together that um you may think again logically you're just you're creating this one thing but really it's like 13 things have to happen and if amazon um if they made you do those 13 things right it would be like such a big hurdle that very few people will be able to do it so they have to automate it and and kind of make it as, as easy and as one button simple as they can one click button that they can but then the other thing i think if they were to try to tell you like what they're doing like that would be pretty complicated too and daunting like if you saw all these messages about like oh i just did these 13 things and you're like wait a minute, what's an auto scale group? Like, do right. I have to know that? Right. Like, right. and so I think, you know, so the, they're on purpose, they're abstracting all that stuff away. They're hiding that stuff away. They don't want you to know about it in general. Right. Right. You do see it in your bill. So I, I you know, I think that's a place where AWS has some room for improvement as a, mm -hmm. a way to, a way to, if you're using a higher level service, figure out how to sort of charge for the higher level service instead of, exposing all the underlying services that you're charging for so that you can think about it as paying for your higher, higher level service and your usage of that. Yeah, it'd be, it would be wonderful to kind of see like, oh, instead of my bill having like these seven different categories, like what I spent in networking and EC2 and RDS and load balancers and whatnot to instead just say like, this is what my ECS service cost me to run my application. Right. You know, it's $173 a month instead right. of like all these, these broken out into various different pieces that I'm not like, what do I do with that? Yeah. So uh, we're running out of time here, but I think we do have time to, to go through one more um, kind of mental exercise to kind of bring it home with ECS and talk about talk about it in a, in a concrete way. Um, I'll, I'll set it up like this. So people that have come from um, platforms as a service, they, they know that when they are going to deploy their application to production, they will have written some code, tested it on their local machine, maybe tested it on some cloud machine somewhere. But eventually they get to the point where their code is in a code repository like GitHub. Um, and then they can tell they can tell Git to push their code to the platform as a service. And then they know that the platform as a, as a service is going to suck in that code, uh, put it on a machine or multiple machines and run it and make it available. 
Um, and the, the whole process when you put something on ECS is a lot different and it's a lot more complex. And I was wondering if, if we could walk through it with at the, at the most understandable, highest level possible without just sort of skipping over all of it. But if we could just kind of try to make that real, like what is it, your code, you see your code in your IDE and you want it on ECS. What is that? What is sort of the very highest level process of, of what that looks like? Um, so the one piece that we we didn't really talk about with ECS yet is um, task. Um, I think we've mentioned the word a couple of times, but we haven't really talked about it. And that's the last piece to um, discuss. So services kind of, they describe, um, you know, this long running service, how many instances of them should be, but it doesn't really describe what it is that you're instantiating. That's the task definition. So the task definition is that fundamental unit that says, this is the the Docker image to run. These are the resource um, quotas that I need to run. So like, this is how much memory I need. This is how much CPU I need. Um, uh, it has other component, like if, if it um, needs volumes um, available, dis, you know, disk volumes available, that would be on there. But that's that fundamental unit, right? That's, that task definition says like, this is the Docker image to run, right? And so your service, when you define a service, you tell the service, what task definition to be using. And so it tells the service basically what Docker image it needs to go pull and, and how it should go create, you know, create that on, on one of the, the host EC2s that's in your cluster. So to actually deploy your service, so you have your code, you, you, you wrote your code, you updated it, um, it's in your IDE. The, the first thing that has to happen is you, you actually have to build your your new docker image from your code um, and you can do that either locally on your on your machine or you can have like a build a build server or you can use like a ci service like something like like circle ci or travis ci something like that where it's it's again looking at your code repository um, it's building your docker image based upon that um, once the docker image is built it then needs to be put somewhere where ecs can see it those are called uh, repositories, um, artifact repositories. Um, there's Docker itself runs one, um, probably the, the most, definitely the most popular one, which is called Docker Hub. Um, that's their um, Docker repository for where all these images can be stored. You can think of it as like a, a library, maybe, um, where you just have all these images that are that are available there. They're you know cataloged, indexed, named. Um, you're able to uniquely identify each one. Um, and then read them when you need to, and and you can put new ones there. It's publishing an image, right? Um, so we wrote our software, um, we built the image, we've then published it to the re- to the repository. Uh, Amazon has its own one called ECR, um, which I believe is Elastic Container Repository, um, and so that's where correct, your, yeah, <laughs> that's where your your Docker images will go. Um, so once you've you've built that image, you've published it to the to the repository. Um, the next thing you'll do is you'll you'll create a new task definition for your service. It'll it'll be an iteration of the previous one, but basically what you're doing is you're probably just changing one thing, and that is you're saying instead of using this older image, use this new one, right? So you're giving it that new unique ID for the new image that you just built and published to your re- repository, and so you update that that you create that new task definition with those parameters. Um, and then the last thing that you do is you now tell the ECS service, instead of using that old task definition, use this new one. And then that's when the orchestrator kicks in and does its thing. So it's going to say, you know, your service definition said, I want two of these things running at any one time. Um, I've now given it the new task definition. It looks at what's running out there and it sees, oh, I have two of these things running, but they're the old version. Then that's not what we want. We want the new version. There, there's parameters on the service that you tell it on how it can do um, these updates by giving it like minimum number and the maximum number of your um, instances that you want running. And so um, it may, depending on those those parameters, it could do things like um, it might terminate one of them um, to take you down to one running thing, one run one running instance. So you now have one running instance of the old version. It then creates a new version. Um, a new instance using the new version. Um, so now you have these two things running side by side. One version, one, one instance is the old version, one instance is the new version. Once that new version comes up, 
is healthy and it passes the health checks. Um, ECS will then go ahead and terminate the um, remaining old one and it will then spin up the new one. So it handles this whole like rolling out, rolling deployment of your new service by virtue of you just need to create the new task definition and register that with your with your ECS service. Something that you just hit on reminded me of a question that Red had earlier, which is, you know, how many containers? Why would there be more than one? And and you talked about well, there could be five different services, and each one might need to be redundant, and so there could, that that right there could be ten. But when you just described that with the rolling updates, it made me feel like, you know, three may be kind of a magic number because if you have three of each service, um, then that gives you the ability to take one down and still have redundancy while one is down. Um, And then the new one, you know, then it comes back up. Then, you know, at, at no point do you have less than two running as you're doing a rolling deployment. So it feels like sort of a, a minimum of at least three might be something that a lot of companies would shoot for when they're doing when they're doing this. Yeah, and absolutely you can totally specify that with your service definition and saying what your minimum threshold is and, and your maximum. Mm-hmm. They um so you 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 tell ECS your service, you tell it like this is the number that I'm desire that I desire to have running. So that's a that's a number. Um, so let's just say it's two, right? We want two two instances of our of our task running. Um, you then tell it what's the minimum percent um, to be running at any one time and the maximum. So if we wanted the case where there was always um, never less than two of these things running, we would set our minimum threshold to 100%. So that tells ECS never go below two. Um, If we do that, though, we have to change maximum to be above 100%. Otherwise, it can't create any new instances and we're never going to be able to deploy, right? So if we set it to something like, 200% 200% or, um, you know, maybe 150% um, type thing, right? So that means now ECS is allowed to go above that um, in order to do its update. And then once the update has happened, it can then terminate ones to come back down to what the desired desired level is. So you can control exactly like how you want this to roll out um, based upon those thresholds, the minimum and maximum thresholds. Just the, the the downside to that is you then have to have the capacity on your cluster to support bursting to those higher numbers. So and it, so it kind of boils down to like how often you're deploying, how many different services that you have, right? You could you could be in a state where if you kind of say like I never want to go below two, I'm always going to burst above it. That you kind of end up being in the state where you have to have a, a few extra host EC2s to handle. Um, just the additional resources that you need to deploy so that you don't violate those rules. So there are some trade-offs there. Yeah, that's interesting. So this whole process of deploying your code, um, it does sound like it's a few more steps, but one of the things that that is awesome is that once that code is built and put into, you know, you take that image, you build that image, and you put it into your Docker repository, then that thing can be used anywhere. You can use that image on staging, you can use it on a test or a demo environment or on production, and it never gets built again, which was not true in the past. Absolutely. And so it makes things like rollbacks um, just so painless, so easy to do, um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And then the other thing too, is like all this can be, it's really easy to automate this stuff. So it may sound like there's a lot of steps, but so much of this is like, it's super easy to automate and you can actually, like the way that we set up our systems at Kelsis, um, a developer commits code to GitHub, and once it merges to um, a designated branch, it just kicks off some scripts that just do all this, this these, these um, makes API calls to ECS to update, um, to create the new task definition, to update the service, and the deployment just happens automatically. They don't have to do anything. So they just commit their code, and a few minutes later, it's running in in their staging environment. And and so we're just back to where we were when we started. Exactly. Cool. All right, I think that can do it for this week. Unless, did I leave anything out, Rich or Chris? Well, there's actually, so in my notes, I have that AWS defines the four key components of a container service as tasks, containers, clusters, and container instances. And I think we tackled the first three of those, not in that order, but did we talk at all about what a container instance is with regard to it being the fourth and there's 
also containers. Like they're separating the idea of one component is a container and one component is a container instance. Like what's the difference there? I think in that terminology, um, AWS is referring to container, what we're calling an image. So um, the image is the, you know, that's the the container definition, right? It's that it's that self-described unit of like this is all my my code and um, operating system and and everything it needs in order to to run. The instance is the the actual taking that image and running it on one of the host EC2s type thing. So I think that's what that what what that the terminology they're using there is their their what they're calling a container is is actually what what we've kind of referred to as an image. That makes sense. All right. Well, thanks, Rich and Chris. Uh, This is another fun one.